Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you, gathered together as the body of Christ in worship, in preparation for Christmas. It is a beautiful morning, and it is lovely to be together with you here. I do hope that you will get an opportunity to join us again later this afternoon where we will, get, we will gather not too far from here um, at the Water Gardens and uh, in Santa Monica and Colorado and, and, and uh, just up Colorado. And uh, it's really just an opportunity for us to be together as a church, having an all-church Christmas party, uh, partaking in some community and some fellowship outdoors, maybe getting around a large fire pit, singing some songs together. It should be a really wonderful time as the sun begins to set in our beautiful city. And it will not, I don't think, be too cold. We'll probably catch some good weather, so that will be wonderful. My name is Trevor, and uh, it's a joy to, to be here with you this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in a, a season called Advent. And for some of you, you're very familiar with Advent. Maybe you grew up in church traditions where Advent was uh, something that you went through every year. Maybe for some of you, Advent is a, a word that you've seen, an idea that you maybe have passing familiarity with, but don't really understand what Advent is all about. Advent means coming. It's, it's a word that, that indicates that in this particular season, we look forward to Christmas Day, a day where we celebrate the first coming of God with us in the person of Jesus. And we also look past this Christmas into the future where we look forward to and anticipate the second coming, God's return to redeem and make right a world that is filled with brokenness. And so in the season of Advent, we are preparing for the coming of God, preparing for the coming of God at Christmas, preparing for the coming of God in the future at what we or Christian theologians and church people often call consummation, or the, the sort of the, the renewal of all things when God will make all things right. And so we are in a season of preparation. But you already knew that. You already knew we were in a season of preparation because you have been doing a lot of preparing. The Christmas season is filled with preparation. It feels like there is no season where our to-do list gets bigger than during the Christmas season. More parties to attend, more things to purchase, more events to go to, more generosity and charity to pour into. It's just sort of more of everything. And as a church, we gather together during Advent to prepare for Christmas, to add to our preparation. And we hope that we are blessed by our preparation and we want to prepare well. If you have a Bible, would you open up to Luke chapter 3 with me this morning? That's where we will be. Our goal this morning, my goal this morning, is that you would leave this morning better prepared for Christmas than when you arrived. Now, I don't think that the way to get there is while during the sermon, you doing your Amazon purchasing, you ordering cards, although we do have a photo booth that maybe will serve you well. Um, our hope is that through God's word, together, we would be more prepared for Christmas. 
So Luke chapter 3 is where we will hang out. Because in order to prepare for Christmas, we're going to spend a few minutes this morning with the person who, arguably in the Bible, whose chief job is to get people ready for Christ's coming. In many ways, the person we're going to look at this morning is the ultimate hype man. When, when I grew up, uh, I grew up at, there was a, a famous sort of rap duo called Public Enemy. And Public Enemy had a hype man whose name was Flava Flav. He had a giant clock that he would wear to remind people what time it was. But his job was essentially to get you ready for what was about to come. This being their act, their performance, the words that would be spoken by his collaborator Chuck D. But when I think of hype men in ways that are maybe a bit more relevant than Public Enemy, I like to think of a scene out of the movie Elf. Some of you are familiar with that movie. It's kind of become a Christmas classic. I'm sure some of you love it, some of you hate it, and some of you have never seen it. No matter, in the film, there's a moment when Buddy the Elf arrives at the department store in New York City that he will be working at. And when he arrives at the department store, he notices or hears that the next morning Santa will be coming. Now he, being an elf from the North Pole, he knows Santa personally, has a good relationship. And so for him, the knowledge that Santa is actually going to be visiting this particular department store in the next morning is overwhelming. So when the announcement comes that Santa's coming the next morning, most people receive that as another update. Buddy the Elf screams, Santa! Because he can't wait for what they are going to experience when they meet Santa the next morning. He spends all of that evening preparing the department store for Santa's arrival because for him, there could be nothing more exciting than to know that the people are actually going to encounter Santa. Well, if you know the film, The Elf, he finds himself mildly disappointed the next day when the Santa he interacts with, in his mind, certainly is not the real Santa. But that posture of being a hype man, of being a excited about who's coming, who's showing up, get ready, make preparations. The ultimate hype man not, is not Buddy the Elf, is not Flavor Flav. The ultimate hype man in the Bible is a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist, his role is to get us prepared not to meet Santa, but to meet God. That's his role, that he, he is tasked with this role to sort of declare, make way, God is coming, get ready, prepare. So in the midst of seasons of preparation, in the midst of a season of preparation, how do we prepare for Christmas? How do we prepare for Christmas? And what might John the Baptist have to say to us this morning? What might God himself want to speak to us this morning through his very word. If you have a Bible, again, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll read the text, and then we'll spend a few minutes together in it. Luke 3, verse 1 through 6. 
in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Luke chapter 3, 1 through 6, introduces us to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's job is to get us ready for Christ's coming. Here's how we are going to get ready for Christ's coming. I'm going to talk about preparation for Christmas in four ways. First, I want to spend time, just a few moments, talking about preparation through history. Then, preparation in obscurity. Then, preparation by repentance. And finally, preparation for salvation. Those will be in my outline this morning, those four points. Preparation through history, if you're taking notes. Preparation in obscurity. Preparation by repentance. And preparation for salvation. We'll begin by talking about preparation through history. The, the Gospel of Luke is written by Luke, who is a doctor, and he is the only Gentile, non-Jew, who writes a Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and John are all the stories of Jesus, the good news according to Matthew, Mark, and John, and they are all Jews, but Luke is not. Luke is an outsider. Luke is a Gentile, and Luke is meticulous. So when Luke is telling the story of Jesus, he goes out of his way to include meticulous details that he thinks are going to be important to us. And what he does here in the first two verses of Luke chapter 3, prior to introducing us to John the Baptist, is that he sets the stage for the time and place that this story emerges. Right there at the beginning. He says that what he's about to say takes place in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor, when Herod was tetrarch, when Philip was tetrarch, when Lysanias was tetrarch, when Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest at the time. Luke begins by making sure that you understand that what he's about to say is he's about to say that what is going to happen happens in history. 
preparation through history. Maybe one of the most important things that I need to remind you of and need to remind myself of each year as we get to the Christmas season is that the Christmas story is not a fairy tale. It's not mythology. Christianity and Christmas is history. That's the beauty of Luke's opening. That he says that when we gather to celebrate Christmas, when we celebrate John the Baptist and him pointing ultimately to the coming of Christ, this is not a story that he's telling. It's not some sort of mythological fairy tale that we're supposed to get some sort of good lessons from. Too often, Christmas has kind of moved into a space where it's been relegated to a kind of mythology rather than what the Bible wants us to see, which is that Christmas is about history. This isn't about stories primarily. This is about history. It's about facts. It's about what happened. Celebrating Christmas is more like celebrating something that happened and something that will happen than celebrating fiction. Now, I love a good Christmas movie, as I imagine you do. They're everywhere right now, and every year the list gets longer. There's great movies, Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life. Elf is a lot of fun. There's a wonderful sort of plethora of Christmas movies. We love movies. We love movies. We love stories. We love art. We love, we love the things that cause our imagination to think about what maybe could be someday. What maybe would be someday. When our kids are little, often we will read them stories. Stories about dinosaurs and stories about bears and stories about creatures making decisions. Decisions. And often the point of those stories is to capture our imagination and to think about maybe what could be. And stories are good. But even better than stories are when we actually come face to face with reality itself. What, what's really beautiful is when we discover that the Christmas story is not merely a story that's put away in a book somewhere, but rather is built into history. Christian faith declares that something happened. Someone came, that we live upon a world when you are, you are right now sitting and walking upon land that has been visited by God. This isn't just religion. This is history. And when we see people enact and live into that kind of reality, when they are captured by that story, and then they begin to live in actuality, it has power. When we see Martin Luther King Jr. stand up in the face of the mistreatment of his people and declaring that we need to, as a country, we, we declare that equality for all is what we care about, but we don't, we don't give it to a certain group of people. We don't just see a story, we see history. When we see Mother Teresa give her lives to the caring of the poor and dying in Calcutta, we don't just see a story, we see history. And the beauty of the Christmas story is that it is history. If you are willing to look in the right place, you will discover not just 
Hope in the abstract, not just peace in the abstract, not just a story that you will give you a little bit of goosebumps during the month of December. If you look carefully enough, you'll be confronted with the reality that Christianity is about history. Christianity is good news about something that's happened, not just about mythology. I love that Christianity is falsifiable. By falsifiable, I mean that you can prove things that did or didn't happen. In the great Apostles' Creed, when we tell the creed and we talk about what we believe, we include the name of Pontius Pilate, who is listed here in Luke chapter 3. Pontius Pilate, a real person, really in history. As Christians, we look back and we say, something happened. Jesus really came. He really was a person. John the Baptist really was a person. Pontius Pilate really was a person. This is history, and therefore we cannot ignore what it points to, what it speaks of, and what it claims. You don't get to ignore Christmas It confronts us because it is history. So this season, as you get ready to celebrate Christmas, I want you to understand that you are celebrating history. Secondly, preparation in obscurity. After Luke lists a name of people, he then says, a word of the Lord has come, right? The word of God comes to John of the wilderness. John in the wilderness. John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. If you've been tracking with us as a church, one of the things you would notice is that we had been in the minor prophets. We had, as a church, been looking at these old minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And the last one we looked at was Malachi. And Malachi uh, is the last prophet, the last one who receives revelation from God, like a clear word from God. And so after Malachi, we have an intertestamental period from Malachi all the way to about Matthew. It's about 400 years of silence. And notice that it's in 400 years of silence that then God speaks. The people had been waiting for God to speak. He had left them with some key words about what he was going to do in the future. And then God speaks. God speaks to John of the wilderness. We, do you notice that we often, um, we love it when people break their silence. We get all excited when someone breaks their silence. Just last month, there was a tragic death on the set of the movie Rust, where the actor Alec Baldwin had uh, been holding a firearm that resulted in the taking of a cinematographer's life and another. And, um, and there was a lot of rumors about the story. And then just last week, right, there were headlines everywhere, Alec Baldwin breaks the silence by sitting down and having a conversation with, in this case, George Stephanopoulos. Now, whenever there's someone breaking the silence, there's a lot of excitement about who is the person who's going to 
be able to get the interview? Who's the person that's going to get them on camera? Who's going to win the interview? That's a big deal. And so Alec Baldwin broke his silence about that tragic day to George Stephanopoulos. And people got excited. They tuned in. Special premiere. I don't know if it was 60 Minutes or just the evening news. But it was a big deal that like we can listen to breaking the silence with this big interview. In Luke chapter 3, God is breaking the silence. And who does he choose to break the silence to? Who gets this prophetic word of the Lord in Luke chapter 3? It's not, I want you to notice, it's not Tiberius Caesar. It's not Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar has a title. He has an authority. He is important. He leads Rome. It's not Tiberius Caesar, nor is it Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, nor is it Herod, tetrarch of Galilee. I love that Luke says, it's, it, I want to tell you what happened when, when uh, Tiberius Caesar was in charge, when Pontius Pilate was in charge, when Herod was tetrarch, when his brother Philip was tetrarch. Look, I love that Luke says, here's an important person, here's an important person, here's a famous person, here's a powerful person, here's another powerful person. And then he says, a word of God came, and who did it come to? John of nowhere. That's who it comes to. John of the wilderness, which is kind of a way of saying John of nowhere. Who does God choose to speak to? John the baptizer, John the humble one, John the lowly one, John the weird one. If you don't know much about John, John has weird hair. John wears weird clothes. John lives in the woods. John eats weird things. John is a weirdo. And God comes to him. Why? Because John is dedicated to the Lord. That is his defining characteristic. When John shows up to any sort of gathering, people would look at him and go, that guy is weird. He's very strange. People would scoff at him. My point is that John is not a celebrity when he receives the calling of God. He is in obscurity. That, and his defining characteristic is his faithfulness to God. He's got weird hair, weird clothes, and a weird diet. Now look, we live in Los Angeles, so you all have weird diets too. That's not that strange. Some of you even have weird hair and weird clothes. We might be kind of moving towards a John the Baptist kind of world. But in his world, he's very strange. Now, he dressed in a way that if you saw John the Baptist, he would fit in with this weird group of people throughout the Bible known as the prophets. But in his own age, he would be very strange. Here's my point. My point is, I think it's beautiful that God doesn't choose the people who are focused on being 
the most important famous people. God doesn't choose the people who are most concerned with respectability. No, God chooses the people who are most concerned with being faithful to him. Let me ask you a question this morning. How comfortable would you be being John the Baptist? Now, I don't mean, I'm not asking you, in no way, shape, or form am I even suggesting you need to change your clothes and your hair and you need to start eating bugs. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying John the Baptist is a strange fellow. He is dedicated to God above all else. And I'm going to argue that if you're the kind of person who dedicates your life to God above all else, you must be prepared to be a weird person in our world. When I grew up, I, my youth pastor in high school would always talk about the difference between being a thermometer and being a thermostat. And he said that a thermometer functionally adjusts to the temperature in the room. But a thermostat changes the temperature in the room by its very presence. As Christians, we are called on some level to be thermostats. We are called to be people who are more concerned by being right before God, by being a people who are more concerned with what God thinks and says of us than what our neighbors do. Do you want to be known by men? Do you want the praises of men? Or do you want to be known by God? To be used by God? We find ourselves at the beginning of the season of December, of Christmas season. Right now, today, what would really satisfy your soul? To be elevated by men or to be met by God? We can prepare for Christmas this season by pursuing God and not by pursuing the praises of men. God often chooses the humble. God works amongst those in obscurity. Listen, I, I want to tell you right now, if you're here this morning and you are feeling like it is becoming increasingly hard for you to stay faithful to the Lord because you feel like in different ways it's costing you. It's costing you reputation. It's costing what people think about you, how they talk about you. I want to remind you, better to be known and to be pleasing, this pleasing in the eyes of God than in the eyes of men. Amen. Stay close to Him. He works often in obscurity. Preparation by obscurity. Third, preparation by repentance. So a word comes to God, sorry, a word comes to John, the word of the Lord comes to John in Luke chapter 3, and then John receives this word, and now his job is to get people ready for Christ's coming. And how does he get people ready? What does he do? He calls people to repent. That's what he does. That's what John does to get people ready for Christ's coming. He goes around declaring, repent. 
Now, now listen, I guarantee that when you think about Christmas, you probably don't think about repentance. That's probably not on your Christmas to-do list. Right? You've got buy gifts, you've got wrap presents, purchase tree, decorate tree, decorate house, bake cookies, right? Convince the wife that mistletoe in your own house is a 24-hour, seven days a week commitment and tradition. Uh, you've got all sorts of things that you might do to celebrate the Christmas season, all of them. You've got big lists, more things to read, more places to go. Right? Our lists get massive, but I would almost guarantee that if I could look into you type A folk and see what's on your list, I almost guarantee on your list is probably not the word repent. But it was on John's list. In fact, for John, it's the number one way we prepare. How does the person who's most responsible for preparing people for Christ's coming tell them to prepare? He says, repent. Now, some of you are like, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't sound very Christmassy. Repenting doesn't sound, I don't, that's not what I, I want. I want, I want festivity. I want comforts. I want I want cozy. Nothing sounds more less cozy than repent. And this is what I have been stirring on this week. And I, I want to ask you this, and I want this question to, to get you. The last couple of years, even last Christmas, was, was challenging in so many ways. And this year, it's really common as we get closer to this year for we've kind of gotten used to some of the ways that life is very different. And so we kind of have this longing for, for Christmas to be the kind of special thing that maybe we didn't get to have last year. We have a lot of hopes and expectations placed on the Christmas season this year. And here's my question for you. Do you want Christmas this year? Or do you want Christ this year? Because my concern is that we can get so obsessed with Christmas that we find that what we're longing for is all of the sort of, all of the decorations, all of the, all of the frosting, all of the extra, all of the tinsel. But what we do, but the question is not, do we want Christmas? The question is, do we want Christ? What is Christmas without Christ? Christ is who we really need this Christmas season. Brothers and sisters, as much as we want cheer, as much as we want decorations and gifts and all of the things that we typically want, what you and I need more than anything is the light of the world to step into our darkness. When I grew up and I heard the word repent, I, I hated it. Because repent just was code word for knock it off. And I, I just always felt like, here come these Christians just always saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, knock it off. Like, like that was the central idea. But repentance isn't primarily, repentance does not translate to knock it off. 
The translation of repentance is to change one's mind in Greek or in Hebrew to change one's direction. Repentance is about declaring turn away from self-destruction and turn towards home. Turn away from the things that are increasing you feeling separated from the light and the life and the love of God and turn towards your Father who made you, who knows you, who loves you, who is calling you home this Christmas season. What a pain it would be if this season we celebrated Christmas morning being personally further from God than when we began the season. Wouldn't that be a tragedy if we opened more presents, but we felt further from God? John comes to declare that we need to repent. We need to turn our minds and our lives to acknowledge that some of the things I'm doing and I'm being and the ways I'm acting are resulting in greater separation from God, a dimming of God's light in my life. And so this Christmas season, I'm going to make a decision to turn away from the things that dim the light of God and turn towards the source of that life, Christ the Savior. We have big to-do lists. What do you need to stop doing this Christmas? What do you need to say no to in order to experience union with God? It's amazing to me that John's primary way of helping us to get ready for Christmas is by declaring that we need to take some things in our lives that are destructive, turn away from them, and turn back towards God. Fourth and finally, preparation for salvation. In verses 4 through 6, we discover that Luke now quotes Isaiah chapter 40. And when Luke quotes Isaiah chapter 40, he is quoting a prophecy that Isaiah had that directly points to John the Baptist. The book of Isaiah tells of a time when before God would enter into the world, there would be one who would prepare the way, who would fulfill a prophecy about Elijah. And so this prophecy is listed in Isaiah 40, that John is the voice of the one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And then what does it say to do? It says, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways made smooth. And then he says, all people will see. Isaiah 40 says the glory of God. But Luke wants you to see that by the glory of God, he means God coming for salvation. We prepare for Christmas by repenting. And some of us need to do that this morning before we leave. All of us need to do that before we leave. But I want you to know, repentance is not enough. If repentance was enough, we wouldn't need a Savior. 
So God doesn't just call us to turn away from. He calls us also to have faith in the one who would pay for our sins, namely Jesus, our Savior. So the last point I have is that we need to prepare for salvation. What does this look like to prepare for salvation? Isaiah 40 says, when God comes, here's what's going to happen. The proud will be humbled. And when God comes, the downtrodden, the oppressed will be raised up. The crooked will be straightened out. The rough will be made smooth. So that we might then see the salvation of God. I was listening recently to uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. He wrote a book called How to Reach the West Again. And it's a fantastic short little book about the changing landscape of our world and what it means to live in a culture that is sort of abandoned Christian faith or is abandoning Christian faith as a plausible explanation for, for how all things are, a way of viewing the world. And he said that most of human history, humans have asked the question, how do we achieve salvation? We live in a world today where now it seems like most people think that the very problem is anybody suggesting that we need salvation. I got an opportunity to meet one of my theological heroes, um, Dr. N.T. Wright. I got a chance to, to ask him a question at a, a gathering a few years ago. And he gave me a piece of advice, which you maybe have heard before, um, about what the role and responsibility of a preacher, pastor is in the world. And he said, um, he said that it's, it's my job, our job, to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. So I want to say this to you. I want you to hear me this morning. If you are in need of salvation, if you're in need of rescue, if if you need the light of God in the midst of whatever darkness you're facing, depression, anxiety, worry, frustration, injustice, apathy, family difficulty, marriage problems, loneliness, fear, addiction, if you need the light of God in the midst of darkness, I want you to hear this, Christmas is coming. But if you're proud and you're arrogant, if you feel indifference towards the poor, if you take advantage of those in your life, if you find yourself being greedy and manipulative, If you are perpetuating injustice, Christmas is coming. Did you hear what I'm saying? Christmas is coming for you. And also, Christmas is coming for you. Do you hear that both ways? 
If you're longing for hope and light and life and peace and joy, Christmas is coming. Salvation is coming. God has come. But if your posture towards God is, I don't need God. I don't need light. I don't need life. I don't, I don't need the love of God. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Watch out. Christmas is coming. I heard John Piper put it this way. If you don't need salvation... You don't need Christmas. We need salvation. We need our lives to be adjusted, to be rescued, to be stirred, to be awakened, to be lifted up. And some of us need to be humbled and made low. But we need the light of God in our world and in our lives. We need to see our own need. And we need to understand that Christmas is about Christ coming to us. So how will you prepare this Christmas season? Will you remember that you are participating in the celebration of history? Maybe for some of you, you will abandon your quest for celebrity. Maybe... Maybe this morning you feel convicted that Christmas is the season to turn away from self-destruction. Maybe others of you, Christmas is the season where you need to realize that it's time to come home. May we all know that Christmas is about our need for salvation. And it's about God providing it for us in and through his son, Jesus. The light of God, the life of God, the love of God, the peace of God, the hope of God, the joy of God, all available to us in and through Christ the Son, born to us on Christmas morning. May we prepare for Christmas a little differently this year. May we know the peace of God this Christmas. Let us pray. Father, we love Christmas. We love Christmas. Our world loves Christmas. It's a nice opportunity to, on some level, Father, just to, to celebrate something that our neighbors are also celebrating. But help us to not just wade into those waters with such carelessness that we miss you in the process. Lord, awaken our hearts to desire Christ, not just the Christmas season. Give us clarity for what we need to repent of this year. That we might turn away from destruction and turn towards your light, your healing love, your hope. Help us to see our need for salvation. Help us to be a people who are comfortable being a little weird and a little strange for the ways that we elevate you above all in the midst of a season that can become about so much else. Help us with reckless abandon to, to, to discover in you, in you alone, the peace, the hope, the joy, and the love we were made for, the salvation we need that you make available to us. Lord, for those who are here this morning and are, are not Christian, they're, they're, they, 
They're, they're not believers. Lord, I pray that they would not just repent, but they would also believe and put their faith in you, put their faith in Jesus, that you would then save them, forgive them, renew them, restore them, and fill them with your light. And I pray for those who are here this morning who have become comfortable in darkness. Those who are here this morning who are in danger of waking up Christmas morning further away from you than they were when they began this month, this season. Lord, I pray that you would draw them back to you by making yourself seen, making yourself great, making yourself known by revealing yourself by your spirit to their hearts in this very moment that we might turn with open hands and open arms receive salvation through faith, through grace, through Christ. Help us to prepare differently for Christmas this year. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.